0: Well thanks Paul for taking the time to talk to me about The Martian, I, f- I feel like the great thing about this time of year is that we can kind of come back and revisit films that, that you worked on several months ago and try to remember, recall, what the heck were you, what was that experience like being away from a film for this long and, and, and kind of seeing the reaction having to go through theatrical and now uh, going to home theater, you know what have you found just the general consensus was of, of the work that you and your team accomplished?
1: Well, overall, it's been it's been really positive, which has been a delight. I mean, you work on you put your best into every film you do, and some hit and some are never heard of. And uh, this one was is very fulfilling, obviously, to to uh, to have good word of mouth and um, and positive reaction from people outside of the industry too. That's that's one of the biggest things for me. Um, there's been a lot of buzz, even from just friends and my family, and. Uh, And other, you know, people, total strangers who have no idea that I even worked on it, talking about it, which is great. It's a really great reaction. And that obviously is not specifically about sound, but the film as a whole, which is, you know, it's really fun to work on a film like that.
0: Yeah. So I guess for you, this is your fifth picture working with Ridley. You know, what were the other ones that you worked on? And, you know, how do you describe your relationship with him working on that many pictures? What is it about your guys' shorthand and, and just working style that you think really, came together for this, for this film?
1: Well, the first film I ever did with Ridley was Hannibal back in, I think it was 2000, uh, 2001. And, um, it's just been an ongoing relationship whenever schedules are available, uh, you know, coincide, um, that we've worked together and I've done the last two films with him in, uh, in London at Twickenham Studios. That was Exodus and now The Martian. Um, and, and it's really great. I mean, Ridley has a, he's a he's just a machine he's an ideas machine he loves shooting uh he loves moving from film to film to film at an ever increasing pace it seems um and he's uh, he has a great team around him both you know in in our sound team and also in in picture editorial with pietro uh, scalia and um and his his own location people his art director, et cetera, et cetera. His whole team has been with him for a long time. Uh, so there's a shorthand there. Everyone knows what to expect from each other. And we can, I find within the sound environment, we can very easily bounce ideas off of each other. And uh, he and Pietro have always allowed me the time to experiment and uh, for us to come up with different ideas. or go back to an original idea. Um, and now increasingly, Ridley is... Um, has is, is, is come in as more of an overviewer uh, to the final mix process, which I love. Um, Pietro and in and in this case, Mark Taylor and Oliver Tani. Uh, Oliver Tani was the sound supervisor, and Mark was the effects mixer on this. Um, you know, we got a chance to go through and do all the fine detail work on the on the reels and then um, Ridley will come in as an overview and, and see a reel or a cluster of reels put together. And for, for me there, that's almost like a mastering process in, in, in records, um, in albums. Sorry, I'm dating myself. In music. <laughs> <It's> all right. <laughs> music. <laughs> because sure. he, he'll come up with um, emotional ideas, creative ideas, overall soundscape ideas. Uh, he's not looking at the, the nitty-gritty of every cut, uh, and it's, it's, that's a wonderful way to work. How much of
0: this film is being influenced by not only the book, but you know, just the, what is on the pages when it comes to the work you guys are doing? And, and obviously, when you start thinking about music and, and those elements, what was it that influenced this film the most, do you think?
1: Um, well, certainly the book and the script. There, there was a point where um, Pietro and Ridley experimented with, with the time at the beginning of the film. And uh, in, in one early cut, the, um, uh, we, we start with Mark Watney struggling to get up on the surface of Mars. And we have no idea who this person is, why he's in trouble, why he then goes through surgery and, and all of the rest. We know none of the backstory. And then it, and it was done as a flashback. Um, but they found that what that then did is when you introduce the crew and, and the remainder of the team later in the film, about 40 minutes in, it came to a dead halt. And um, so they decided to go back to this structure. Um, and um, sorry, what was the other part of your question? There was another.
0: Uh- <laughs> oh, I mean, just the, the influence. I mean, I think you definitely answered it. It was, it was more so wondering, you know, how, how much is in the writing stages of um, influencing the work that you guys are doing. Because I imagine what's on the pages in the book is, is one set of, you know, kind of directive, but then it's a totally different, Type of reaction, I guess, when when Ridley must get in there and reimagine what's on the pages.
1: Well, I think I think Pietro and, and Ridley probably they kept fairly true to the script. Um, mm-hmm. When it comes to my part of it, which is obviously at the very end of the project, and uh, I, I personally don't like to get too influenced by the script on any film. Yeah, I try to um, just see the first cut and the and the follow up cuts from that point forward. So I don't get any preconceived notions. I often find that when I read the script too early on, um, it's like a radio play in my head and you have these you know, images of what you think it's going to be and then more often than not, you're disappointed when you see the actual cut and it gives me preconceived notions that I don't really want to have. I want to watch the film for the first time like the audience is going to watch it and, and get the emotion from that and get my, my directions from that as well, sound-wise.
0: Yeah, at what point is there collaboration, you know, with your composer? At what point did you start talking with Harry about potential, I mean, are are you, are you at all involved with any of the initial conversations, the spotting or any of that early conversation?
1: Not so much because that would be between, um, Harry, Pietro and Ridley. Um, I do know that Piet, um, Harry went to the cutting rooms in South France and met with Pietro and, um, and Ridley fairly early on. And, um, they, they decided, they elected, it was Pietro's idea to um, play the film for Harry with no music. And so that he didn't get any influences from a, a preconceived temp mix, well, or a temp, temp music track. Um, and apparently that, w- that went down really well. Harry enjoyed it, they all enjoyed it. And then they played it with the temp music, and then they discussed the spotting, and Harry developed ideas from that point forward. But throughout the temp mixes that we did, um... Harry had some very very good mock-ups of the themes and and the way the structure was going to uh, finally come out. Um, so we had a, we adjustments were made obviously and and uh, cues were changed, but um, very early on we had a very good idea of, of what the themes were going to be throughout the film.
0: For Harry, I guess you know how much of his kind of direction he was going in terms of kind of carrying a scene? I mean, was it evident in terms of how much music was going to play in, into a lot of the key scenes of the film?
1: Yeah, I think it was. Um, I mean, Harry has said that he he didn't want to make Mars an enemy or a monster. He wanted to make Mars more of a vista and um, sort of um, a wide expanse. And, and the, the threat of, you know, having to constantly try to survive through that is is was evident Um but in in the score i think the various themes for different characters uh were also i mean there there was a sequence during um the crossing mars area of the film uh, where um uh Harris score really shone because it was it, he did very very long what i call horizontal kind of cues where they, they it was more of an emotion and a feeling and, a, and an awe of the of the vistas that you were seeing and he had the time to do it and he had, didn't have to be um, hectic about getting a cue in and out between dialogue or something like that um... so i think a, a lot of a lot of harry's score was um, was that kind of an emotion of awe when you saw the the big vistas and he had the time to do it and then and then also the sort of bubbling of an excitement as um, earlier on in the film, where Mark was deciding that he could win this battle and he could survive, and he was being proactive about getting things done, um, you know, growing food, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. then at those points, Harry's score was more active and bubbling underneath the, the activity at all times. It was, um, I think it's a great score. Harry, did a great job.
0: I think a big aspect of this film, too, is a lot of it kind of takes place in these in the spacesuits with the helmets on. And, and I guess your, um, your Dialogue ADR supervisor, Rachel Tate, kind of had really a challenge laid ahead of her to capture that. And with your production mixer, Mark, Ruth, you know, what were the conversations about how you guys were going to capture this and, and even replicate it?
1: Well, unfortunately, I didn't have any conversations with Mac, um, but uh, but it was very close, obviously, with Rachel and Oliver in, the, in going through. And early on, made a list of um, all of the different FUTs treatments that would have to be made throughout the film and it was it was over fifty quite considerable and um, for the helmets um, a lot of the close-up shots of the helmets there was no visor on location so we did have good recordings of, Matt got some good recordings of the um, the dialogue itself and the visor was added visually in in, uh, VFX later on in post so but, but it was a challenge for us. We, Ridley always wanted the breathing and the claustrophobic nature of, of Mark's environment in the suit to be very prominent, uh, whether he was walking outside of the hab or if he was in space or wherever he was with that helmet on, and which I think was very effective. Um, but we ended up having um, a dry futz, uh, sorry, a dry signal from the uh, voices. And then I did a, a FUTS treatment on the console. I did, we had some speakerphone FUTS treatments. But what we found was most effective was Oliver and Rachel got one of the helmets from the props department. And we put a small speaker in, in, inside it and, and mic'd in various places and actually weldized every single line. Um, so that then when it came to the various scenes in the film, I, I had the option of about four or five different FUTS treatments. And dry, to try and make you know the uh, the reality of the of, of in the helmet, but also not lose the clarity. I could always get back to an original mix um, in the storm sequence in in the first reel, um, which obviously it was a tough sequence to get through, I elected initially to to try and keep as full voice as we possibly could for intelligibility um, throughout that sequence, and then Oliver. On one playback, right, rightly said, you know, there's not enough panic in this. Um, it's all a little bit too um, too clear. And so he and Rachel took all of the lines, and beyond the four or five futses I already had available to me, he went and re-recorded it all on um, from my pre-dubs um, on a small um, tube AM transmitter that he had, and this analog tube. AM transmitter would never sound the same twice. So you just record the line. If it sounded good, move on. Otherwise, tweak it slightly and it would come out differently again, et cetera, et cetera. And so we just weldized, he weldized all of that through, through the transmitter as well, brought that back to me. And I now had an additional FUTS that had a great little sort of distortion and broadcast quality to it, too, that we could use when the, when the astronauts were talking to each other throughout that storm sequence. It was quite
0: effective. I mean, when you guys kind of untangle the challenge of how you're going to make something sit in a track, how much of it can be finessed on the console alone versus going back and adding these additional layers? I mean, this is a a pretty unique experience of having to, you know, kind of stylize it because of just the nature of, you know, what's going on on screen. But what tend to be the challenges in terms of not only matching levels, but just EQ and how much compression and dynamics are you just consciously aware of? No matter what the project is, when it comes to mixing dialogue.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, in, in this film, there was a lot of sequences where I had a like 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 the storm sequence or the liftoff. Um, you know, when uh, when Mark finally leaves Mars. There's re- in those sequences you got a really small dynamic range of of be- between. Being intelligible and being obliterated, and you know, it literally is about one or two dB sometimes. And the tendency can be to easily grab, um, you know, grab EQ and go for a slightly shriller performance, etc., to try and make it cut through. I, I try to avoid that, and in this film, definitely try to avoid it. Um, with Mark's cooperation on effects, you know, we managed to clear out certain frequencies and areas in the center channel um, to allow the dialogue to to breathe through that, but. I tend to set myself a limit as to how high I'm going to let the dialogue get, regardless of the scene. And then for, from that point on, it's more about don't make it too shrill. Don't make, make it very even in those very loud sequences. Um, so a lot of, there's a fair bit of compression. Um, in this particular film, maybe lean away from a helmet futz more into a full voice because you can still cheat a narrow bandwidth sound like a futz. Amongst all of that sound, when you have a rocket taking off around you, you can use a fairly broad EQ um, on the dialogue and still, still have it seem like it's a futz. Um, but it gives you power, it gives you intelligibility, and it gives you level. Yeah, I think so much of uh, I think challenges today when we
0: have characters that do not you can't see the mouth moving, or it's not very clear, there's a, a struggle for the audience to get intelligibility of understanding what they're saying. You know, have you seen a shift in terms of the role of a dialogue mixer?
1: Yeah, I think, well, personally, I like to definitely maintain a certain dynamic range. I don't let it get beyond that, and I don't let it get under that. It's really frustrating as an audience member if you miss more than, you know, a phrase of dialogue throughout a film. And uh, I think there's a little too much reliance on um, certain plugins that allow easily cleaned-up dialogue, but have artifacts, and um, and and you end up with sort of a a shrill, um, slightly unbalanced track from top to bottom uh, in some films these days. And, and also I think it's becoming harder and harder for some mixers to put an overview on, on a film, which I think is really important. I mean, you go through all the nitty-gritty of the EQ and the editorial, et cetera, et cetera, and then you do a, a balance of it all within the scenes, but it's so important to, to look at a, a, the structure of, of a reel and then the overall film. Um, to make sure it flows well and that it's not peaking and valleying too much. Um, I think I think just being consistent with your approach on that and and being very mindful of, of what the audience is going to see for the first time. There's in my opinion, there's a lot of there's a lot of films right now that in the past few years where the dialogue has just been um obliterated and or, or it's a little uneven, and and it's frustrating to watch.
0: Yeah, it really is. What, well, what for you has been your own evolution, being in in that chair of you know handling dialogue and music? Well, what is it about just where technology has gone, and, and the role of the work that you guys are doing? How have you kind of found your own process? What has really worked for most of your career here?
1: Well, I I started off in music recording and um, just sort of drifted into post actually years ago um, for TV first, and then for film. Um, and to me, it's, um, sound is sound and, and I, I like a certain character of sound, whether it be for film or whether it be for music. Um, and so I've tried to sort of eliminate the divides that, that exist between, sometimes between the three groups of dialogue, music and effects. I mean, definitely try to definitely avoid that one. Um... And go with what my gut instinct tells me is, is sounding good or isn't sounding good. And if, it's, if there's a problem and I can't work my way around it, then flatten everything out and bypass everything and start again from scratch and, and try to build it up again. Um, I, I, I don't actually make much of a distinction between the, the departments. And I, I try to, obviously, when I'm concentrating on pre-dubbing for dialogue, that's all i'm going to be doing but once we get further into the process i'm thinking more about the overalls you know should music be leading should di- should effects be leading is dialogue getting lost should the dialogue get lost etc Um and personally my the tools that i still use i mean i i've i've evolved with the technology through the years obviously but i have now found a plateau where um, i still like to mix on a traditional console um, i really enjoy Pro Tools and other workstations, in terms of the uh, the finesse and resolution of getting in and, and taking out a click or whatever, and some of the plugins that are available. But I don't like to mix within that environment. I like to still use that as a playback tool and a record tool, and and then mix on a console.
0: When it comes to music mixing, you know, what is the typical type? Even for the Martian, how much material is coming back? What is the what do those breakouts look like and you know how do you start sorting and and laying out your tracks how do you, how do you like to do that
1: well i always i always tell um composers and and or in conversations with composers and scoring mixers and editors you know keep things as wide as you as you feel comfortable with i'm i'm happy to take you know 120 music tracks rather than 6 um, and on this particular film um Peter Cobbin did the record at uh, Abbey Road for Harry Gregson Williams, and um, worked with Peter before. He's fantastic. The um, what he ended up supplying me was uh, about fifteen 7.1 stems, so a lot of uh, splits on the orchestra and the synths, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But because we were mixing an Atmos as well, he um, he hung. Uh, a variety of mics from the ceiling in Abbey Road, which is just an incredibly beautiful sounding space, and um, I ended up with quad tracks on the strings, the percussion, the brass, the choir, which um, just sat so well in atmos in in the uh, ceiling positions and then of course, I was free to open up the seven ones into Atmos as well as as required, but most of the time it became because it was a a lot of an orchestral very much an orchestral score um, that became just the the sort of icing on the cake that these these this perspective from the ceiling of Abbey Road it was really nice
0: how how wide do you tend to go in terms of leaving room in, in your center channel for dialogue because you're aware of both the fact of dialogue coming through the center channel where do you tend to go with your music how much space do you have
1: well I actually don't like to go too i i'll go the full width obviously the left right um if I get a you know a five o a five one stem or a seven one stem or whatever I'll definitely take it all the way out as originally intended, but I don't tend to take things out of the center channel too much unless it's a frequency collision going on um that i need to to spread out or reduce um, I'm actually even if I just get a two track, I'm, I'll never ever go just straight left, right, because I don't like that being off access feel for the audience. So I'll always actually crowd the center more than I'll um,
0: remove. And, and is that just from preference over the years or what you found as work? Because I feel like translation to the theater is a total, that's a whole nother conversation. But I think I was just even watching a f- film last weekend, and myself and a friend of mine both came back and we said, it, it felt like it we heard the dialogue, but we weren't connecting with with the screen. There was a separation there. What what have you found is the balancing act to connect the audience with that screen?
1: Well, that's yeah, that's crucial, obviously. I mean, assuming that the theater you're listening in is set up, which is a big assumption, um, you don't want to detach the dialogue too far from the rest of the track, um, so it doesn't feel like it's embedded in the scene. Um, but... I, again, I think this is just you. You have to just gain that knowledge from the room that you're comfortable mixing in, to going out and seeing the end result with an audience in various locations, and try and take a, a sort of a mean average of of all of the theatre theatre um, anomalies, the movie for the for the audiences, and um, you can't mix for the least common denominator, and you can't mix for the best either. You have to find somewhere in between, and 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 decide what works for you in terms of how to balance it in your room that's um that's really not a i don't it's not a very scientific approach but it's one it's the only one i found that works you have to go out and relate Uh, years ago i was mixing several films in a room where it translated very very well but then i felt like overall more often than not the sub was slightly light outside of the room and um not in all cases but more often than not so you know, we made a decision to change the level of the sub in the mix room because it might not have been quite right, but that's the way it was translating to the real world. And and I think it's just that ongoing evolution of listening to what the audience is listening to, and and trying to make it relate to what you're mixing in the in the studio.
0: Yeah, I, I think so much of the conversations I've had over the years with mixers is about, you know, bass management, control of the room, understanding dynamics, and and managing your dialogue with you know, the priority being that the audience can understand what's going on. But now with these immersive formats, you know, like Oro or Atmos, it kind of changes a lot of, there's traditional rules that, we, that I think everyone follows by, but then it's giving you the ability to kind of pull away from what I think so many people have become comfortable with. What have you found these technologies are great? And what are the some of the kind of the gray areas where you start getting away from giving your audience the right experience?
1: Yeah, I mean it's a good point. There's there's so many immersive technologies now, and and the, te- the the technology has evolved to the point where we can we can actually make this happen, which is amazing. Yeah. I, I like these te- new technologies. Um I, I think in particular Atmos is is really great. Um But I think you absolutely have to have a solid core mix in a you know 5.1 environment, for instance, or a 7-1 environment. And if you have a solid mix in that and you're allowing things to evolve into Atmos or Oro or other formats, it'll always sound better in those formats but, but you, the key is you absolutely have to have a solid 5.1 even 2-track mix underneath that, all of that um, and don't lose sight of that, don't go for just the whiz-bang that's gonna sound great in Atmos or Oro and then you pull it down to 5.1 and it's really not translating very well what what is it about that
0: translation too? Because so many of these movies now are going to be experienced potentially on smaller devices in stereo, or and you know like this the near field mix. What are you finding is revealing when you crash down your mixes and you get to a stereo mix and you listen to it? What what do you tend to hear?
1: Well, dynamics yeah. definitely. The uh you can go for a, a wider dynamic range in a, in a more immersive format. You get down to a, a stereo or a 5.1, you, you're going to want, or near field, you're going to want um, to reduce those dynamics quite substantially so people aren't leaning in and pulling away. Um, and, you know, the issues like we've, we've touched on here with clarity of dialogue through a, through a theatrical um, environment become even greater. Uh, in a in a smaller speaker environment, or a, or a lower level smaller speaker environment, um, at, at that point, if you haven't taken care of those clarity issues in the theatrical, you don't stand a chance on the yeah on the smaller.
0: How, how much tweaking are you doing for the home releases when you listen back to those playbacks?
1: Um, most of the time, not EQ. Okay. Um, definitely, it's it's more. Um, it's more riding the lower level areas up slightly, um, so that again you're reducing the dynamic range, but so that it's, everything's staying audible, the way the original intent of the mix was. Uh, and then obviously just for for practical reasons, you have to um, you know limit the plus twenty area just for overloads. But it's more about for me, it's more about pulling up the um, the low level areas whether it be in effects or music or dialogue, or all three. Most of the time, it's as a balance of all three.
0: I think it's incredible just in the past years just with a handful of kind of sci-fi space movies from The Martian and Gravity and Interstellar coming out, and they've all done fairly well. And, and it seems that audiences are really excited about seeing these kind of science fiction space movies. It's, it's,
1: I hope so, because it's, it's also, you know, it's the story. It's um, there's, there's an element of science in this film, obviously, that... Um, Everyone had to stay true to, but um, it's not overly scientific and nerdy. It's it's more a story about survival and and people coming together to help a common cause. You know, it's a it's a hopeful story, and um, yeah, I think there's a people want to get that kind of escape in the movie. Still, um, you know, it's not all about shoot 'em up action films, <laughs> right? Well, Paul, thank
0: you so much for taking the time to talk about The Martian. It's great to, like I said, kind of reflect on a project a little bit after it's been out. But even so, it's still a great film to go back to. So thank you again for taking the time.
1: Thanks, Michael. Pleasure. Thank you.